My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I'll be speaking with Simon Black. Despite mythologies about Canada that paint a picture of devotion to peacekeeping and to noble goals, there's a long history of Canadian involvement in, among other very bad things, the manufacture, sale, and trade of arms. Part of why Canadians remain largely unaware of our arms industry is because government monitoring and regulation are confusing, inconsistent, and opaque, which makes it difficult to report on and analyze. In 2016, Plowshares Canada estimated that Canadian manufacturers exported arms worth 2 to $3 billion and sold a similar amount domestically to the Canadian military. In that year, we became the second biggest arms exporter to the Middle East, and Canada is consistently in the top 15 exporters globally of pistols, rifles, and light machine guns. Again, according to Plowshares, Canadian arms exports reached new heights in 2018, and despite increased rhetoric about tight export controls, four of the top ten recipient countries in that year were involved in armed conflict and had been credibly accused of serious human rights violations. Simon Black is an assistant professor of labour studies at Brock University in St. Catharines, Ontario. He has been active in the anti-poverty and labour movement since he was a teenager. In August 2018, he was watching the news and saw a report of a bombing by the coalition forces led by Saudi Arabia in Yemen that destroyed a school bus, killing 40 children and injuring 56 more. The plane that dropped the bomb was sold to Saudi Arabia by the United States. As he watched, he happened to be holding his two-month-old daughter, and this juxtaposition focused his attention like never before on the pain of all of those parents who had lost their children in this bombing and launched him on a path of organizing against the arms trade. That bombing took place in the context of an ongoing military intervention in Yemen by Saudi Arabia and other Arab states, done with logistical and intelligence support from the U.S. and other Western powers. As a result, Yemen is currently experiencing the world's worst humanitarian crisis. The Canadian connection comes in the form of a massive deal in which General Dynamics Land Systems Canada in London, Ontario, is being paid upwards of $15 billion to manufacture light armoured vehicles for the Saudi military. Saudi Arabia is a dictatorship with a terrible human rights record, even aside from its role in the massive humanitarian crisis in Yemen, so it is unclear how this deal is consistent with the principles that Canada claims to observe. Groups like Amnesty International and Oxfam Canada were already demanding that Prime Minister Justin Trudeau cancel the deal, so Black decided to focus specifically on organizing within the labor movement. He co-founded a group called Labor Against the Arms Trade. There is a long and proud history of grassroots labor opposition around the world to war and empire. It includes instances of dock workers declaring arms, including a few times in recent years arms bound for Saudi Arabia, to be hot cargo and refusing to handle them. And it includes instances of workers demanding that their own plants, with state support, undergo conversion from military production to socially useful production. 
Labour Against the Arms Trade's first action was an open letter to Hassan Youssef, President of the Canadian Labour Congress, asking that the CLC oppose this deal, that it declare arms destined for Saudi Arabia to be hot cargo, and that it put its resources behind coordinating Labour opposition to the deal. Signatories included some large public sector unions, some major Labour councils, and some NDP MPs and MPPs. Unifor, which represents workers at the plant that makes the light armoured vehicles, has so far been silent on the deal. And, to date, Yusuf has not responded. Labour Against the Arms Trade followed this up with an online petition, the group was active in raising the issue during last year's federal election campaign, and they're currently planning an action that will take place in the next few months that they hope will continue to broaden their support among trade unionists and peace activists. I speak with Black about Canada's involvement in arms production, about the current arms deal with Saudi Arabia, and about the work of Labour Against the Arms Trade. I'm Simon Black. I'm an assistant professor of labor studies at Brock University in St. Catharines, Ontario. And I'm an organizer with Labor Against the Arms Trade, which is a coalition of peace and labor activists working to end Canada's participation in the international arms trade. I've been active on the left from time of being a teenager, I guess, active in the labor movement and the anti-poverty movement. I wouldn't say I was active in the anti-war movement or peace movement. I participated in anti-war demonstrations and in marches. But most of my activist life has been spent in labor and in the anti-poverty movement, working around issues like social assistance. And then through my work as a university professor, as a scholar, looking at how low-wage workers, particularly care workers, can organize and mobilize to improve their wages and working conditions. So I haven't been that active in the anti-war movement or the peace movement. But I became more active as I became more aware of Canada's $15 billion arms deal with Saudi Arabia. And that was an arms deal that is signed under the Harper government in 2014. And I was aware of it at the time. And then as I watched the news and became increasingly aware of Saudi Arabia's intervention in Yemen and the devastation that it had wrought, I started to think about what I could do and what we in the labor movement could do to bring an end to this arms deal, to bring an end to Canada's complicity in war crimes in Yemen, and to bring an end to an arms deal to one of the worst human rights violators in the world. And according to the International Trade Union Confederation, one of the top worst countries for workers' rights. So as a labor studies professor, as a trade unionist, I started thinking through what could labor do to bring an end to this arms deal and what would be the implications for workers themselves in the arms industry if the deal was canceled. So that's really the genesis of labor against the arms trade. And it was back in 2018, I was watching the news, a Saudi coalition warplane that was sold to Saudi Arabia by the United States that dropped a bomb on a school bus in Yemen. And that attack killed 40 boys, aged 6 to 11, who were being taken on a school trip, wounded about 79 people, 56 of them children. The bomb that was dropped was a 227-kilogram laser-guided bomb that was made in the United States by Lockheed Martin. And I sat there watching coverage of this on the news with my then two-month-old daughter on my knee. And I thought that, you know, just by luck, it's not my daughter who's been born into a conflict zone, a war zone, such as that of Yemen. So that's when I became more seriously active in campaigns, both through Amnesty International and then through founding Labour Against the Arms Trade to bring an end to the arms deal that Canada has with Saudi Arabia. Explain some of the basics of what's happening in Yemen and of Saudi Arabia's role in it. It's a complex conflict. It really began with the Arab Spring. There was a rebellion in Yemen by the Shia Muslim minority there. It's a movement which now takes on the name of the Houthi movement. 
that movement had rose up against the then Hadi government, which was a very corrupt government. And Yemen is the poorest country in the Arab world. Corrupt, inept government brutally cracked down on protests and crushed dissent in the past. There was widespread unemployment and food insecurity in Yemen at the time, as there continues to be. And that movement, the Houthi movement representing the Shia Muslim minority there, had gained momentum. And they were supported actually by Sunni Muslims as well in the country who were fed up with the corruption of the government. And the Houthi movement, the rebels took control of the capital of Yemen, Sana'a, in early 2015. And that's when Saudi Arabia, which was backed by and is backed by the UK, the US and France, had started to provide logistical and intelligence support and arms to intervene in Yemen. So a Saudi coalition, which includes Saudi Arabia and the UAE, has intervened in Yemen and has been waging war against the Houthi rebels and waging war in much of the country. Saudi Arabia sees the Houthi movement as being backed and aligned with Iran, which is Saudi's mortal enemy in the region. The intervention began in 2015, and then in 2017, Saudi Arabia blockaded Yemeni ports, and that really exacerbated what was already a very dire humanitarian situation there. So, like I mentioned before, Yemen heads the list of countries facing the world's worst humanitarian crises. 24 million Yemenis, that's about 80% of the population, are going to be in need of humanitarian assistance this year. 16 million lack access to drinking water and sanitation about the same number of food insecure. There's 3 million internally displaced people. 80,000 Yemeni children have died of extreme hunger since 2015 as a result of the Saudi-led intervention and the blockade. And again, this is already a very vulnerable population, already the poorest country in the Arab world before the Saudi-led coalition intervened. And so now we have Canada selling arms to a country that not only prior to this intervention had one of the world's worst human rights record, including on workers' rights, but is now, as the United Nations Human Rights Council has found, is very likely committing war crimes in Yemen, which Canada, along with other Western powers like the UK, US, and France are complicit in. And another important piece of context for this conversation is the Canadian role in the arms trade. Most Canadians, I think, are pretty unaware of that history. Some people have talked about Canada as a a kind of a junior partner in the American military-industrial complex. And much of the branch plants or the American base corporations that have arms manufacturing plants in Canada are responsible for exporting arms, rifles, tanks, light armor vehicles, like in the case of the deal with Saudi Arabia, to various countries throughout the world. But, you know, there's Canadian corporations as well that manufacture arms and are complicit in the devastation that military conflict brings to so many people around the world. So I think it's wrong to see Canada as a kind of a junior partner in the military industrial complex. We have our own small military industrial complex here. And it's really something that the Canadian state has pursued to be a competitive industry in the global economy. If you take the arms deal with Saudi Arabia, you know, that arms deal was brokered and is being managed by the CCC, the Canadian Commercial Corporation, which is a crown corporation that helps Canadian companies in aerospace, defense, infrastructure, and other sectors to land contracts with foreign governments. So that arrangement means that the exporting company, which is General Dynamics Land Systems in London, Ontario, which is a subsidiary of the American General Dynamics Corporation, that that company acts as a subcontract and actually gets paid by the federal government. So once Ottawa receives payment from Saudi Arabia in this case, then that's passed on to General Dynamics Land Systems Canada in London. 
So the Canadian state is an actual kind of broker in the arms industry and is very active in promoting Canadian corporations who are part of the arms industry. What were the steps in turning this moment of realization that you had about the severity of the situation in Yemen and Canadian complicity through this particular arms deal into a new political project? It was in December of 2018. Peace activists affiliated with the Council of Canadians and other peace groups they set up a peace picket outside of the port of St. John. And it was important because the light armor vehicles manufactured in London are being transported by rail to the port of St. John. And then they're loaded onto Saudi ships there. So those ships were docked and there was a number of light armor vehicles which are ready to be loaded onto those ships. And the peace activists set up a picket line. And to their credit, members of the International Longshoremen's Association, Local 273, refused to cross that picket line. So that brought to my attention the fact that there were labor movement folks. There was action around this beyond the petitions I'd been signing, demanding that the Trudeau government cancel this arms deal, that there were folks on the ground who were active in opposing this arms deal. So I got in touch with some of the people in New Brunswick. I got in touch with that local and the leadership in the ILA Local 273. And then I got in touch with a PhD student at York University by the name of Anthony Fenton, who I met over Twitter, who's doing excellent research into the political economy of the linkages between Canada and Saudi Arabia. And so we started brainstorming what we could do in the labor movement to bring an end to this arms deal. And it was quite soon after that, probably in the spring, that we saw a number of instances of dock workers Dock workers in the port of Genoa in Italy, uh, the port of La Havre in France, port of Bilbao in Spain's Basque Country, who had all started taking solidarity actions, declaring arms destined for Saudi Arabia to be hot cargo and refusing to load them onto Saudi ships. So it was kind of a culmination of research and discussions with folks in the labor movement and the peace movement. And that all culminated with an open letter to the president of the Canadian Labour Congress, Hassan Youssef, which demanded really three things, that the CLC take a stand against the Saudi arms deal, that the CLC declare arms destined for Saudi to be hot cargo, and that trade unionists would refuse then, following the lead of the CLC, to handle it. And lastly, that the CLC used its considerable resources to coordinate labour opposition to the deal. And some people have said, why did you focus on the CLC? Why not focus on the Trudeau government? We knew that there was a number of organizations. I've already mentioned Amnesty and Oxfam, Save the Children, Plowshares Canada, that have been sending letters, three, four letters since 2015 in the election of the Trudeau Liberals, demanding that the government cancel this deal with no response, with no action being taken. It was only the murder of Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi, which even seemed to give the government kind of a pause or to hesitate to continue to fulfill the terms of the contract. But even then, it was just a halt, not on export permits that had already been issued, which were part of the Saudi deal, but on new export permits. So we looked at the dock workers who had taken action in solidarity in New Brunswick. We looked at these wave of actions by dock workers throughout Europe. And we thought, well, it's really workers themselves who can bring an end to this deal. It's Unifor workers who are manufacturing these arms in London, Ontario. It's Teamsters who are transporting these arms on the CN rail lines to New Brunswick. And it's dock workers, members of the ILA, who are loading them onto ships. So how could we convince the CLC to back a broader peace movement within the labor movement that could bring an end to this arms deal and that could mobilize workers around this? 
So the original letter that went to Hassan Youssef had 250 signatures, and that included a number of unions, public sector unions, QP Ontario and the BCGU being the most prominent amongst them, but also some NDP MPs and MPPs in Ontario, MPs like Nikki Ashton, Matthew Green, who was from Hamilton Centre, who was then a candidate and now represents Hamilton Centre, Don Davies, Joel Harden from Ottawa, an Ontario MPP, and then a number of Labour councils also signed on. Durham, which is just east of Toronto, Hamilton and District, Niagara. And then as the letter and the petition gather momentum, we've also had Vancouver and District Labour Council sign on. And then activists that Anthony and I both knew who were active in the anti-war movement. And those folks that Anthony knew through his research who had been either doing research or were engaged in activism around the Saudi arms deal. So I'd imagine one of the key challenges of this organizing is the range of different relationships that trade unionists have to the arms industry. Yes, there's a tradition of unions taking a stand against these kinds of things, but there are also histories of certain North American manufacturing unions being very supportive of the arms industry because it means jobs for their members. How have you navigated all of that? Like you said, it's complex and it's difficult to navigate those relationships. I don't think Unifor in particular wants to have anything to do with this campaign at the moment. And you can understand partly from Unifor's perspective, General Dynamics Land Systems, one of the largest industrial employers in London, Ontario, that's a region that has been devastated by deindustrialization. So you can see why Unifor, despite its proud tradition of international solidarity and a kind of a social justice focused union, you can see in the context of the closure of the GM plant in Oshawa that Unifor is fighting hard to preserve the jobs that its members do hold in places like London, which have been hit hard by deindustrialization. I can speak more about Unifor and what we consider to be alternatives to the manufacture of arms. We're not just for an end to the Saudi arms deal, but we're for arms conversion. But you have more left-wing traditions in the labor movement. That's dock workers, the Longshoremen's Association, like that local out in New Brunswick. The dock workers there had taken action in 2003. They declared any arms that were going to be destined for the war in Iraq to be hot cargo. They refused to move them. And their tradition goes back to the late 1970s. They refused to handle nuclear components that were going to be destined for the military junta in Argentina at the time. So you see within the labor movement, both your more conservative unions that are tied up in the arms industry, a union with a proud tradition of social justice like Unifor, which finds itself defending the heinous arms deal, and then a union on the left of the movement with a more radical tradition like the International Longshoremen's Association, which is taking a more progressive stance when it comes to this arms deal. So I think one of the ways that as organizers in this movement, we have to approach this is to think about what are the various points of leverage within the labor movement? What can we do as a movement to give confidence to workers to take a stand? So for instance, that action I spoke about in 2018, in which the members of the ILA 273 refused to cross that peace picket, well, they've been slapped with a heavy fine now by the Canadian Industrial Relations Board because their employer, the port, took them to the board and filed an unfair labor practices complaint because they said they essentially set up a political and illegal picket line. So what can be done in that context to ensure that those dock workers are willing and ready to take similar actions? That's something we've been thinking through and trying to plan. Unifor seems to be unmoved, but if we had the opportunity to sit down with Unifor and to address the leadership of the local there, Local 27, you know, we talk through what kind of demands could be made 
in the event that the deal was cancelled, what kind of demands in terms of public investment that could be made in that plant to ensure that the plant was converted towards the production of socially useful products as opposed to machines of death that are being transported halfway around the world and used in the conflict in Yemen. What is conversion and what do you hope it might mean in this instance? We're taking the lead here, not only from arms industry workers who in the past have demanded conversion from arms production to socially useful production, but also from the demands that are being made for a just transition when it comes to the climate crisis. We can demilitarize and decarbonize those demands that are being made for a just transition for workers in the oil and gas sectors to ensure that they're not cut loose and left out to dry in the fight against climate change and move towards a low carbon or no carbon economy. And we see that same demand for a just transition as being relevant to arms industry workers. And we really take inspiration from something called the Lucas Plan. This was when workers at Lucas Aerospace, which is in the United Kingdom, came up with a plan to retain jobs by proposing an alternative, socially useful applications of the company's technology and of their own skills. They did this under the banner of no to arms production, we want socially useful work. So it was a network of unions representing workers at Lucas Aerospace that through their shop stewards committee came up with a corporate plan that included five very detailed sections, each 200 pages in length with the objective to protect union members' right to work in the context of a recession of the mid-1970s. This was 1976 that this Lucas plan came about. So to protect union members' right to work in the context of the, of the economic crisis, of layoffs, and the offshoring of work that were being proposed by the company, and to ensure that alternative products that were socially useful to the community at large take the place of the arms that were being produced by the workers at Lucas Aerospace. The Combined Shop Stewards Committee at Lucas Aerospace met with the then Minister of Industry under the Labour government, and they developed through this plan 150 alternative products. So developed from the ground up, from the bottom up, from the shop floor. So it looked at the technology and the skills that all the workers there had, from the engineers to the line workers, and came up with 150 alternative products. Had the government, uh, the Labour government, lost the next election, the Tory government was elected, had the government in the UK backed their plans and invested in that plan, you could just imagine that Lucas Aerospace would not be a, a leader in manufacturing armaments in the world, but would be a leader in manufacturing green technologies, which we so desperately need now to confront the climate crisis. So we take inspiration from examples like Lucas Aerospace and the Lucas Plan. And what are the additional political complications of advancing that sort of plan for conversion today, given the differences in context from 1976, with the intervening decades of neoliberalism and the retreat of the state from that kind of intervention in the economy? You're right in terms of retreat from the state, but let's look for a second at Bombardier in Quebec. Billions of dollars, public dollars, have been pumped into that company. And now we hear that Bombardier is selling off an important division to the company Airbus. I think that states, even the neoliberal state, has continued to make targeted investments in industry when it's considered to be politically the right thing to do. So in this era of market rule, we still see targeted public investments by the state. But also in the context of 40 years of neoliberalism now, it's a context of a worker's defeat of the trade union movement, of the labor movement being on the back foot for so long. And really the political horizon of the movement and of working people 
the type of political imagination necessary to confronting war, to confronting the climate crisis, being eclipsed really by the need for hanging on to jobs in an economy in which is increasingly precarious, in which workers are insecure, and which people are rightfully worried about how to make ends meet and how to pay for their kids to go on to post-secondary education and to have a better life than themselves. So in this context of both a state that is not as prone to state ownership or public investment, although when we can look at the Trans Mountain Pipeline as well as an example of at least the Trudeau government nationalizing dirty oil, there is still a state that has the capacity to make public investments, to nationalize industry and to nationalize industry towards progressive ends. Unfortunately, we haven't seen that in the case of General Motors in Oshawa, where activists have been demanding a conversion of that plant towards green technologies and green vehicles. But again, it's also the context of the labor movement that's been on the back foot, in which a neoliberal capitalism has really weakened the capacities of trade unions, of the labor movement, to organize and mobilize around big projects, around big ideas about transformative solutions. But really, those are the only solutions that are going to save our movement, are going to save working people right now. So we need to think big. And when you take little cases like London and GDLS Canada or GM Oshawa, you think, well, what could be done? How could we come up with a plan and how could we mobilize around this? I think the huge task of rebuilding the power of working people in this current context we're living in, I think that huge task looks a little smaller when you break it up into little actions and little plans into concrete things that could be done in communities to save jobs and to move towards green and peaceful production. So given that the CLC hasn't responded to your open letter, what else have you been doing and what else do you have planned to push this issue forward? We sent a letter and then we've been using an online petition at change.org to continue to gather support. We have been active around the federal election campaign, continuing to try to raise awareness of the arms deal through and in the labor movement as well. And then hoping to partner more with a broader coalition of NGOs and human rights organizations like Amnesty and Oxfam, who have been making the same demands that this arms deal is cancelled. We're planning to hold an event in London, Ontario on June 4th at 7 o'clock at the Toll Puddle Housing Co-op there, where we're going to sit down in the London community with local labor activists, with members of the Canadian Association for Work and Labor Studies, and train unionists to talk about alternatives such as the Lucas Plan and what we can do in a place like London to demand not only a peaceful and just and green future, but demand that workers have their right to a good livelihood be respected by the corporations and governments, which will, at the end of the day, hang them out to dry when push comes to shove. And now, I can't say too much about it, but we're in the process of planning a national day of action against the arms deal. So if folks are interested in getting involved with that, they can contact us. We're on Twitter at at LAAT Canada, that's Labour Against the Arms Trade, or they can contact us by email at laboragainstarmstrade at gmail.com. So we're ramping up to an action that we hope will gather widespread support amongst trade unionists and peace activists over the next couple of months. You have been listening to my interview with Simon Black of Labour Against the Arms Trade. To learn more about their work, search for LAAT Canada on Twitter. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show.
On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, SoundCloud, and other platforms. I'm Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, published by Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. Thank you.